Okay, today I am at Wolverhampton Races with uh, Sam Turner. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us Cheers, today, Sam. Uh, Sam. Right, so you're a Robin Goodfellow. Yeah. You're a jockey's agent, you're a pundit, you're a TV presenter, you're a tipster, you're a journalist, and you're a punter. Which do you identify with most? Well, um, as we'll probably talk about, the, the jockey's agent uh, role that lasted a season. Um, I haven't quite got the sack, but um, Meg Nichols, who I looked after for you know, 12 to 14 months, um, sort of passed her over to a, a full-time agent, somebody who can do her justice, really. So um, probably a tipster, writer tipster, really, is the one I'm most comfortable with. Okay, now if I got my research right, which I should have, because you gave it to me, <laughs> uh, you, left school with, uh, you left school with A-levels, but you became a board marker. Now, first of all, you must have been pretty overqualified to be a board marker, and secondly, it wasn't that shrewd a move, given how long a board marker had left. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, you didn't see my A-level results, so I was probably <laughs> underqualified. Um, economics wasn't my strong point. Um, I, thought I got a U, which I thought was for unlucky, um, but obviously <laughs> it was unclassified. Um, I was always all right at English, did quite well in the English, but um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I, I sort of, as we'll probably touch on, um, got to know Andy Holding through cricket and he said well what do you, you know once I've left school uh, I'd got the summer you know I, I to myself really why don't you come and have a little sort of part-time job or just come and mark the mark the uh, board for Stanley Racing and Whit Marines um, which was a very eclectic mix of customer but um, <laughs> it certainly it certainly gave me a good um, grounding as to what was required you got to watch the racing and he was a good judge even back at, back in the day and you know we were just getting into the realms of pictures coming into the shops rather than just the Extel commentary so yeah it was good crack. So I'm assuming that your interest in racing started before that so what, what, what yeah. spurred your uh, interest in racing? Well at high school I mean I, w I was always a little bit I mean my only vice really I mean I didn't smoke I didn't drink particularly but I did like to punt and I, I, I sort of started on fruit machines like a lot of you know teenagers do and you know managed to wean myself off those at an early age realizing that I was there wasn't much future in those thankfully um, and there was a, a lad in the upper sixth as it was back in the day um, David Wernick who was the son of Mickey Wernick uh, who was quite a renowned sort of bookmaker at Monmouth Green and local tracks he was also a pretty decent poker player as well um, and I, I popped down the local shop with him one lunchtime trying to swing away and miss miss french and um ended up having 50p on a winner and that was it i was hooked then you know watching watching your horse come home in front it was uh, it was probably the worst thing that could have happened anyway certainly for daily mail readers because then i was i was absolutely engrossed in the whole sport hey, so you mentioned earlier that you were you were quite good at english so when did your interest in writing start yeah i could write probably better than speak it um yeah, from an early age, really. I mean, I, I, I was always massive into sport, you know, cricket predominantly. That was my sort of my first passion from an early age, really. Growing up with both them, um, the 1981 Ashes, all that sort of stuff really fired it. And, and I was always intrigued by the, the people who earned a living from writing about sport. I thought, well, you know, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Who wouldn't want to do that job? I wasn't good enough to play at a high level, played, you know, good club cricket, but I was never good enough to go and play county cricket or even minor county cricket so being able to watch it and get paid for watching it um, was was definitely the way forward really so that's where the sort of the love of sports writing came from and I, I enjoyed sort of creative writing really from you know from the word go so that, that was always my strength really I wasn't a particularly brilliant academic I was okay with maths I could work out what an each way double came to um, but that was that was about the extent of it really so when did your um, when did you decide to try and actually combine the two for a living Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
probably when I was about 17, 18, I, I you know, tried to get into one or two places. I tried to get, um, I did some work experience at the Express and Star and the sports desk there, and they had some quite legendary names at the time. <coughs> the sports editor, Brian Clifford, um, Peter White, David Instone, people who covered football in our region, you know, the West Midlands region for a long time, covered the top teams. Um, really enjoyed it. There weren't any openings. I had to go and get some qualifications, really. A lot of people used to have to go into journalistic courses at Preston, those sort of places. That never really appealed to me. I'd had a, my fill of school, really. By the time I got to 18, I wanted to be earning and I wanted to be, you know, sort of living, really. Um, whereas most people saw three years at university as exactly that living and enjoying themselves. Um, maybe I was too much of a home bird, I, d I don't know. but. Um, so I, instead, I, I ended up um, working in the betting shop for a few months and then got a job on the Express and Star, but selling advertising for four or five years um, and did that, made my way up through through those levels and, and, and just got an appreciation of newspapers, how they work, deadlines and things like that. So it was still quite good and I was still writing advertising copy, albeit it was boring stuff about somebody having a, you know, a nice fire for sale or uh, you know selling various cars or whatever but it, at least it was still working within the newspaper industry so I could get an appreciation of, of how it worked and I, I probably spent more time down on the sports desk watching test cricket and the odd derby than I did actually watching you know where I should be doing you know trying to sell advertising for the paper so I wasn't probably the greatest rep that they've ever had. So you did actually cover football at one point. Um, mm. Telford, yeah. now, did your football uh, career sort of begin and end there. Why did you ever <laughs> consider football journalism as a, as a career route? Yeah, I mean it was very much a very much a, a positive. I mean that was in the early two thousands when I was on the Shropshire Star. Um, I had two seasons of doing Telford, which were great. You know, I had a brilliant manager to work with, Jake King at the time. The, the players were, were terrific with me. Certainly, they were they were great. They had a couple of really good seasons um, in the conference given the budget that they were on and it was it was great fun you know traveling all over the country covering conference football with one eye on the racing but it, it my role on the Shropshire Star at the time was very much combined racing and and football with with plenty of cricket thrown in those were my sort of three areas of supposed expertise so I spent more time writing about those three things and I looked after the racing page I learned to lay out a racing page um, I went to Ludlow I went to Bangor and the odd Cheltenham did stable tours with Henry Daly or you know who Richard Lee whoever it may be so it was a really good grounding for me. Okay now we're here talking to you now because you are a, a successful tipster writer punter pundit all these things we talked about before so when did the serious interest and the serious punting on racing start for you? Um, it took me a good few years to win I think um, I certainly I didn't go to university but I, I certainly went to university of becoming a losing punter um, and that, that took more than three years good good distance um, like everyone you have the flashes of where you might just have a bit of joy you might get all four up on a Yankee and win a few quid um, but considering I was sort of betting probably from 16 I, I, I'd say it took me well into my 20s before I became any good at you know winning or knowing that I could win regularly really and finding a method and a, you know, a way of operating that gave me a chance of winning. Okay, now, so along the way, you st you're doing these proper jobs, do you work for CFAX? Everybody <laughs> yeah. of a certain age will remember CFAX. Yeah. Was that, was that uh, was an important sort of... Um... Massive. Yeah, that, that was my first real job in racing. Um, I think there was four or five of us got taken on at the time, and there were some, some brilliant minds in there. I mean, David Ord from the Press Association, John Hopkins, who's gone on to be one of the sort of the top subs on the Racing Post, and it was all run by Mike Grenham, 
um, who was at Hills for a good long time overseeing all their broadcasting operations and I, I learned to write you know well I, I thought I could write going up there but I, I, I hadn't got a clue but I, when I got there and, and the stuff that I learned from those people how to write quickly how to write uh, you know, interesting, informative stuff, but of course you've only got so many characters to align and you've only got so many lines on a page, you know, CFAX for those old, of, old enough to remember, everything had to be punchy, everything had to be good, hard, fast copy, and you had to get like a headline out within 10 seconds of a horse going over the line as well, and you had to write a snappy headline and, and you know, an opening paragraph of on a race before they'd even pulled up pretty much, so it was all really good grounding for writing quick, swift copy. Okay, so then also you obviously became good at tipping because in 2001, 2002, you won the naps table. Take some doing for freelance. Yeah, that was on the Shropshire Star. I mean, it was probably one of the lowest figures to have ever won the naps table. So it was, um, I, I had one of those golden spells where somehow I managed to stay in contention and not, it must have been a tough year because nobody ran away with it. Um, I stayed in contention and then Cheltenham Week, just had a, had a dream week, Cheltenham Week. Um, I think I had Sully's Hope Horse of Nick Williams's, uh, which Ruby rode on that, that Stratford the Monday afternoon, that one at 12 to 1, and that, that sort of got me level, or just just above parity, and, and I think it was me and Rodney Masters, I think, from the Racing Post, and we, we sort of duelled for the, about the next eight to ten days. It was quite a short competition in those days. They've extended it out now and, and sort of evened them to, to the summer and the, the jumps. Um, naps competitions are more in line with with each other you know six months apiece but back in the day the, the jumps one was probably only four to five months and the flat one seven months so you had to be good for a less amount of time um, and I just hit a golden run and I hit a number of decent price winners and, and just managed to fluke it really. So was it on the back of that that you got the job at the Sportsman? Um, I think it certainly helped um, after the Shropshire Star I, I got I was lucky I got into a position where uh, I could I could leave the Shropshire Star but work as a freelance so I, I got some work through when I was covering Telford I was also working sort of on a Sunday as a freelance sub for, for the mail um, I'd sent in one or two stories and they'd use them and they said look anytime you want to come in as cover just come in on a Sunday so I'd if Telford had got Stevenage or Dagenham on a Saturday afternoon I'd stay over and then and then go into the mail on the Sunday and that was a brilliant grounding um, we got some fantastic people on this, the racing desk some of which unfortunately aren't there anymore um, but I learnt again there you know it's just a case of being a sponge and trying to take on board all these uh, and, and the accuracy and the level of subbing you know was, was a diff absolute different level to anything that I'd probably seen before um, you know the, the way that the pages were scrutinised before they were sent to print as well was the, the highest of standards. It was brilliant. And Marcus Townend was, you know, the editor then. Um, Brian Giles was was Robin Goodfellow, and we we seem to have a plethora of staff. But unfortunately, like a lot of racing desks, you know, that's gone by the by. Now, going going to the sportsman. So you've got on there, and you're one of the four horsemen. <laughs> well, the, the sportsman was a funny funny situation, really, because um, I think they tried everyone and everyone and there was a lot of people on the racing post who managed to engineer themselves decent wage increases on the back of the sportsmen showing an interest in them basically so i think the sportsmen were really scrabbling around for bodies at the time and i, I was sort of freelance and and my girlfriend at the time I, I was saying oh there's this new racing sporting betting paper coming out do you think i should apply for it and i was i was really quite enjoying what i was doing i was doing freelance for the Tropshire Star, I was doing one or two other bits and pieces for GG, 
um, gg.com and uh, writing for them and, and I'd got quite a comfortable life and I, I, I wasn't having to extend myself too much you know as long as I did my homework and, and you know sorted through the races on a daily basis I was I was very comfortable and then I just decided well go on what have I got to lose I'll apply to the sportsman and I think as I say there were there were short, shorter numbers and I, I, I got a job and got taken on there and um, obviously off the back of the, the, the NAPS table win that helped because it just gave me a little bit of prominence in the industry otherwise it was who, who the hell's Sam Turner you know he's, he's been covering Telford for two years we don't know anything about him so um, winning that at least gave me a little bit of a, a leg up. Okay uh, so who, who were the other three horsemen? Oh better judges than me Simon Rowlands, um, Ian Dean and Richard O'Brien who is now well entrenched with the the Dixons uh, in the horse watchers so I mean there was some yet again brilliant people to learn from absolutely brilliant people to learn from and there was other good people um, who've gone on to have good careers who, who actually worked on the on the racing desk as well that's interesting because there were a lot of talented people on the mm. sportsman so what do you attribute to its demise then um, or lack of success originally oh there's a few things um, I think primarily is, is trying to run before it walks um, we went as a I think from memory it's a while ago now but uh, we went as a, a as a sports betting paper with racing on the inside and I think they realized the error of the ways after a few months and then went you know racing with sports betting inside I think that was better um, I think they paid some a-list celebrities a lot of money for columns which you know bankrupt the, it's like bank management isn't it when you're betting if you stay in the game for long enough you've got a chance unfortunately they threw a lot of money at it in a short period of time and I think the post were worried at the time I think they were we were definitely by the end by the nine or ten months in that's all how long it took for the whole project to come unstuck but by the end we were a much better paper as you'd expect admittedly than we were six months previously and I think by the end I think it was a really really good competitor to the Racing Post it's just a shame it couldn't stay in the game long enough to to try and survive okay so in part one Sam we talked about the demise of the sportsman you landed on your feet you ended up as <laughs> Robin Goodfellow at the Daily Mail yes How did um, that happen? well I think a, a, a useful set of circumstances which probably helped me really were the fact that I'd, I'd worked a lot as a, as a freelance there as a sub so at least they knew me you know and they knew that I'd got a method they, they could see that I wasn't too bad a judge um, and I was you know I was fairly open to hard work as well so I think all those sort of things helped in my favour and, and with anything you know in newspapers in the last I don't know 15 20 years have been a lot of cost-cutting measures and perhaps they felt that we could get this kid on the sheep um, and we could probably save some money if we were you know people of a certain age that were on the desk um, and I think Brian Giles at the time who was the, the incumbent Robin Goodfellow had a really good you know career as, as Robin Goodfellow won, won awards etc um, he was probably approaching uh, you know, a retirement age and they probably just saw it as a, as a way of you know look we can cut this much off the budget because Brian was obviously going to be on a great deal more money than I was ever going to be on um, without going into figures and and the, the the stars aligned really so it was just a, a role that I, I was I was very fortunate to to drop into but I suppose I'd done the hard yards by working my days off as a freelance for them so at, at least I felt I'd earned it in some way. Now what are your counterparts the, the paper but the politically polarized <laughs> polar opposite to the Daily Mail yeah it, it seems to have taken that the 
the um, political beliefs of the paper very seriously. <laughs> Did you ever feel the need to, uh, to follow no. suit? No, without getting myself into too much trouble and bringing a, an average career to a swift end. Um, I think it's fair to say when I buy the mail, I read the back 14 or 15 pages. I think there's some brilliant sports writers and uh, we're very lucky that we've had some great people work for the paper over the amount of years that I've been working for them and I enjoy reading their copy. I don't tend to read the front bit. Right, with your, with your uh, career in mind, um, mm -hmm. how much of your day do you actually spend as Robin Goodfellow? God, that can, that can vary. Um, my wife would tell you too much, um, you know, maybe even sort of 14 to 16 hours some days, certainly through the summer. Um, it's a half six, quarter to seven start. And if you're watching night racing, it can be to eight, half past eight. And it is very difficult to sort of continue that level and, um, you know, keep working those hours as a, as a one man band, really. And that's where I'm, I'm lucky in some respects that, you know, I have got a couple of guys that I work quite closely with Andy Holding and Andy Bate and, and you know we divvy up some of the workload that, that goes into producing speed figures and you know selections in time um, and that's shared around a little bit because I think it must be really difficult for you know just a one-man band to, to be able to do something and do it well to the level it is with the volume of racing we've got. Well how much of a thankless task is being a race, uh, newspaper tipster? <laughs> well um, it's not digging the road is it Simon and it's not being out in Basra on a tour so we've got to put it in context really it's a very privileged uh, position. Um, you do carry with it a, a weight of expectancy and also a little bit of a burden. Um, if you're in any way con conscientious and I, I don't see anybody who does my job who, who wasn't whether it be Steve Jones on The Sun whether it be Yatesy, whether it be Chris Cook and The Guardian or, or Greg, um, you know, everybody is very, very passionate about wanting to, you know, tip six winners at Cheltenham or, you know, find the winner of the seller at Wolverhampton. I, I think there's a lot probably said that, oh, you just, you know, it takes you five minutes just to go boom, 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 and, but that nothing could be further from the truth, I don't think. I mean, yeah, there are occasions where you might think on a bank holiday with eight meetings, look, I can't give fake and I'm the, the amount of coverage or the amount of time that I would love to do it because something has to give. There are only so many hours in a day and you've got deadlines. But I think if you, you know, if you do work at it um, and you know the form, some of the races sort of sort themselves out anyway. But it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy job and it, it, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, my wife will tell you, just with this press challenge competition and whatever, um, you know, the last couple of months of, of the year, last year for me, were, were were pretty unsuccessful um, and you do start to feel the pressure you know if you if you've got anything about you and you've got a consciousness that you know your name is going next to some tips in a paper and there might be so many hundreds of thousands of people looking at those tips you want them to be successful it's embarrassing if they aren't and you know that's that's certainly how I feel anyway okay now you mentioned Andy Holding and Andy Bate mm. uh, Andy Holding's probably best known I would imagine yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've known each other since you were teenagers and between mm. you you developed some speed figures. Mm. Now tell us a bit about that. Yeah, known each other since teenagers. I still haven't managed to shake him off. Um, it's lasted longer than some marriages and I, it does feel like you're in a marriage sometimes when you work so closely with you know, both of them really. I, I met both of them through cricket. Andy Bate is the brains of the operation. I don't think Andy Holden would mind me saying that. Um, he's the one that's developed software for us, um, you know, worked out how to best use the databases that we use, you know, how to get all the figures onto the website that we run. So <coughs> he's, he's 
been you know an absolute godsend and, and brilliant at that as well as combining that with a full-time job himself um, a, a good full-time job as well um, and Andy Holding is very much um, you know just totally totally motivated and driven by backing and and tipping winners you know he's a very very simple beast um, brilliant at what he does um, certainly so concentrated and motivated and focused on on racing um, I, I can only wish to have that level of, of focus really because I, I like there's other things I like in life really but Andy he's got a young son now so he's um, he's probably gone a little bit broader in his in his interests and whatever but he's you know he's a, a terrific you know professional really at what he does okay now speed figures nothing new about mm, speed figures no. so what makes yours differ from what's already out there? uh i don't know if they do differ particularly from anything that's out there but they i mean you know that, that was thanks to andy really we got into those because like a lot of people who you probably interview they all read the nick mordan book um they've all written they've all read probably one or two of the bayer books as well like we have um and found those a, a fascinating read i, I mean as as our figures are quite very easy to use. They're, they're very simplistic. Um, they, you know, they are. I mean, they are a, a rating, you know, which which calculates what a horse is capable of doing speed-wise. You know, probably from its last two two and a half years of its career. So, you know, we pride ourselves that they're they're for the man in the street, really. That you know, a lot of people use figures. You know, whether it be the Whitley figures or various other ratings and they're beyond my pay grade um they're, they're they're too academically challenging for me but at least i i know how to use these figures and i think we all do um and we find a bit of joy with them now you say interestingly that they're for the man in the street mm. why aren't they for just you free because surely you devalue them when everybody's got them yeah and this used to be my argument um <laughs> and andy holding will tell you that but he was always very keen that we should perhaps have a website and launch them onto that website. And what's the website? Uh, AndyHoldingSpeedFigures.co.uk, I think. Um, titles will appear have, here. The titles will appear here, don't we? <laughs> it should have been sponsored, shouldn't I? Um, and, and back in the day, I was dead set against it because it was an edge that we had. But I think a lot more people are doing them now. I think I think they they flooded the market in some respects. Um, but look, we, you know, we've got a very loyal clientele which is growing month on month, which suggests to me that there's still a, a place for them in the marketplace and we're, we're lucky I do all the flat figures Andy Bate does all the national hunt figures and Andy will do all the sectionals and the circuits so there's there's three of us going into producing them um, and in a good way you know if Andy gets a good circuit and Andy Bate gets a good overall figure then those are the races that you you'd want to concentrate on really so that, that that's why I think they're I suppose they're a little bit um, you know that there are they're very unique to us in some respects okay so if i was to subscribe to, to the um to your speed figures and i was looking down through is i know it's simplistic but is every mm. is the top rated horse the bet or do you just leave people then to delve deeper is this a, the marker yeah or, or would you give figures that each top rated horse has produced a profit or yeah i think i mean look like any rating service, the, the top rated or the top two rated does produce big winners that you can't envision. I mean, there was one the other day, 50 to 1 Dodgy Bob, that was second top rated. That, but it was an old figure, so you wouldn't necessarily use that as your first point of research. But it, the, the beauty with our, our figures, I find, is that they do tend to unearth some incredibly priced winners. Um, and, you know, look, they're not every day. I don't think anybody professed that you're going to find big price winners every day of the week. But... 
they do tend to find their fair share. Um, obviously logging them myself, I see them on a regular basis and usually I'm chastising myself because I haven't tipped it. Whatever's won at a big price, I've, I've you know, skewed it for whatever reason. But um, I like good current figures, I must admit, and I like to see a pattern in a horse and, and we produce the spreadsheet where you can see whether it's right-handed or left-handed, what the going allowance might be, the distance, the, you know, all those sort of variables in a, in a rather plain and simplistic way and an easy to use way. But it's, it's, it's a sheet that I've worked with for you know, probably 18, 19 years now, and I've had reasonable success. I'd say Andy Holdings had pretty good success with it as well. So, you know, we feel they do work. Okay, now obviously we could talk about speed figures for the whole interview. We haven't got time to do that. <laughs> but for example, a slowly run race with a sprint finish, that sort of thing, does a race have to be run at a true pace for it to be? Does a race have to be truly run to be a, a valuable form figure, or can you still take things out of that race? I think I think we all prefer those, but uh, I do also think that if you can envisage a scenario where a horse keeps winning in sprint finishes, and, and look, it's a slow overall figure, and it's a fast come home time, and you can envisage in two weeks' time in a five-runner race where that might be the same scenario again, I think that can then point you in the way of a of a winner. Um, so I don't think everything has to be truly run, and sometimes we we might get a, a poor overall, but a you know a strong circuit time or the other way round where. You know, they might have gone off too quick and, and the come home time is pretty poor, but the overall is still very respectable. And you, you then look to see the different positions of those horses in that race and, and that can then point you into winners. I, I don't think there's any substitute for race reading yourself, making notes yourself, watching as much racing as you can and then using the speed figures to give you the picture of the race. And it can, I just think with, with speed figures and sectional times and, and circuit times, it just helps you build up a pattern of how the race was run or a, a, almost like a narrative of how that race has been run now you can't afford to do it for every race there's just too much racing nowadays i mean how long for the days back in the 90s or 80s where you had two cards on a monday and you know a tuesday off or whatever and then three on a wednesday and it built up slowly to the, the weekend you can't give it that level of attention nowadays there's just too much of it but you know the top meetings you know you can drill down deep and, and dig into the races and you know certainly the Irish stuff as well which we do and the, and the British stuff you can ally the two and you can certainly get a good grasp of what the best horses are quite early on in their season which is a massive bonus for us. Now, quite often you speak to um, perform experts and they delve deeper. Uh, are there times in a race that doesn't look all that spectacular that there has been a, a a section of that race where a horse has done an exceptional time that you all sort of jump up in the air and think Eureka we found one. Yeah I think so. Um, I think one thing punters don't look at enough is the start of races. Um, I think there's there's occasion you know both on the jumps and, and also on the flat where a horse might completely miss coming out of the stalls and then you know runs a good sectional through the race but has then paid for having to make up that ground. Um, I'm not a big particular believer in weight and, and, the, and the difference that that has to horses but I'm a quite a big believer in in you know distance and giving away lengths cheap lengths so um, I, I would I would you know pay a lot of attention to the start of races and if a horse that has started slowly has, has done a lot of running to get into contention and then fades from the furlong marker I would definitely be keeping him on side next time for example okay so we've fascinatingly recently I've spoken to Andy Holding 
and I spoke to Mark Holder, and they're you that yeah. have mentioned this mysterious character, Steve Goff. Um, <laughs> now, how big an influence, obviously he was a big influence on all of you, because you've all mentioned him. Yeah. Is he still active? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, um, he's, I would say, singly betting-wise, and reading a race and tipping and you know everything away from perhaps writing which I've learned off some brilliant people um, how to try and write properly but as a way of evaluating form and winning methods and perhaps managing banks and things like that he, he's he's right up there Steve um, he was a, a guy that sort of shied away from publicity a little bit but you might have seen him once or twice on the old at the races where he he had a pretty good day down here once. I think he picked all seven winners and might have won near enough half a million pounds down here. And I've been with him when he's won half a million quid on a day at Hereford races and stuff like that. And he's um, he's just an ingenious character. So he was bef obviously before his time in a lot of ways. Just yeah. give us a couple of examples about what he was doing that other people were. Well, he, he, I mean, he was doing, <coughs> excuse me, circuit times before a lot of people, I think. I mean, we, we shouldn't um, talk about Steve without mentioning his partnership with Peter Jones as well. And they, they would be onto the first Tricastle, the high numbers, and they'd be winning money there. They'd be, the, every little angle they got, I mean, they started at the dogs, I think, at Mama Green, they were timing races there. They got themselves a little um, office above a betting shop so that they would then be able to run a cable from all the, the uh, betting shop TVs up into their office so that they could do all the times, they could do all the circuits, they'd know all the fast horses before anybody else had even thought about it. Um, and they got themselves such an edge and they were, they were just brilliant at it. They were brilliant to spotting winners. They were brilliant logistically as well as getting the bets on. Um, I mean, it was like a military operation at one point, I think. I mean, I wasn't privy to all of that because um, it was only sort of my time at the Shropshire Star that I, I sort of spent more and more time with Steve. So my early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, but I mean, he was an absolutely fascinating individual. If you can get him on this series, he'd blow it out of the water. Okay, well, we'll, we'll certainly try. <laughs> so, I'm assuming you don't always you don't spend all your time with your fingers on a stopwatch. So, how <laughs> no. do you set about what, when you sit down in the morning to tackle the day's racing or the day next day's racing? Mm. Where do you start? Um, I usually usually catching up on the previous day for the first couple of hours. Um, races I haven't seen, um, speed ratings I haven't done. So, I'd, I'd normally. Obviously in the winter it's a, night, a bit, bit quieter because I'm not doing the jumps times, Andy Bates doing those, so I just you know, look after the old weather. Um, might do a few sectionals if it's a better card um, and then just try and get a picture of, of how yesterday worked. Um, get all those figures into my database so we're, we're right on top of everything. Um, so then if we're generating them for the next day, because obviously you get a lot of horses that back up quite quickly on the old weather, so it's important really for the product that all those uh, times are, are in the database. And, and then I'll just start looking at, at the forthcoming day's racing, really. And, and then also perhaps to the week ahead, if, if we've got a quieter time, sort of early part of the week where there's only three meetings, I'll be looking forward to, to Saturdays or if I'm doing a racing TV day, you know, like a Ludlow on a Wednesday or Thursday, I'll start looking at that card and try and get ahead of myself. Okay, so how many hours would you spend those in the form book? I, th I think probably all, all day um, in one context or another. Uh, I, I try not to do too many hours in the afternoon because I think it's really important that I'm actually watching what, what's happening live. I don't think you ever, you can watch stuff on VT and you can watch stuff the day after and, and think, oh, that was good, that was good. That, but I think those first impressions sometimes really do shape how you think about a horse. You know, I remember seeing footpad jump round his novice chase debut and I just thought wow straight away now 
I might well have thought that on the Monday after the Sunday when he made his debut, but they're just occasions where you see a, a performance that just takes your breath away and you think, yeah, okay, I, don't, I don't, almost don't need to watch that again. That was that good, you know, and I've, I've watched it that closely. So I think sometimes if you're watching racing the day after and co catching up on it, you find yourself a little bit easily distracted thinking, oh, I just need to do that, or I just should be doing that while that's on. And you, you don't, you're perhaps not as focused as you should be. But I think with all the videos that are on, open to everyone now, that's the biggest change really in the last 10 years, that you can just watch every race at the click of a mouse and there's no excuse really for not seeing as much as you can. Right, so we've, we've talked about all the work that goes into it. We've talked mm -hmm. about your speed figures, we've talked about your form study. How successful a punter are you? I would say it makes up a portion of the cake, really. Um, I've never really stretched my, I was always a better writer than I was a punter. Um, but in the recent years, with age, you, you find a way and a method of, of chiseling out a few quid here and there. Um, I'm, not a big, I'm not a huge punter by any stretch of the imagination. I think finding your emotional threshold as a, as a punter is, is the best thing that you can do, really. You know, if you lose 200 quid, is that gonna change your life? No, if you lose 500 quid, is that gonna change your life? Yeah, it might do. And it might affect how you are with your wife, you know, or your boyfriend or your husband or whatever further down the line. So um, I just think finding a figure that you're, you're comfortable with losing, you don't like losing it, oh, don't get me wrong, nobody likes losing, but, but it's not going to affect your day and it's not going to affect going forward, your mental state really is the key. I mean, we've, we've all been in a situation, um, me as, as well as anybody, I would think, where you, you have gone on the chase and, you, you know, you're perhaps you're still finding yourself punting figures on a Friday night at Dundalk, which you, you really shouldn't have been punting at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon anyway. Um, and that, that, that's one of the biggest pieces of advice. I, I would say never strike a bet at nine o'clock or up past eight that you wouldn't have had at 12 o'clock earlier on in the afternoon. Um, you know, if you're, if you're just ticking away and you're betting to the same levels all through the day and you're happy with your selection process, then if, if that's showing a profit, for the previous 12 months there's no reason why it shouldn't show a profit for the next 12 but if you then suddenly start going like that with your stakes that's just asking for trouble so bank management's the most important thing i think okay so have you never considered going professional um, just being a I've, punter? I've been fortunate though i've never had to really i know a lot of people um would say well you know if it's so easy picking winners then why haven't you but i think there's different skills certainly you can be a good analyst and you can be a dreadful punter and the other way around you can be a brilliant punter and you don't necessarily have to read a race particularly well but you might just fancy two or three in the race and you might know the best way whether it be on a spreads whether it be laying the favorite some people have got that intuitive manner that they can just see an angle in a race Steve Goff John Babb who we'll perhaps talk about um, Andy Holding to an extent they can just see a way of getting profit out of a race and I, I don't know whether you can learn that I think that some of that is just born within you you know what I mean if that makes any sense um, I see that a bit more now but that's only because I've been doing it for so long and if you do a job for so long if you don't get any good at it then you should pack it in really mm. and have you got like a team of men around betting shops to get you to no, get Sam's no. stake on um, I mean you know there's a you know, a lot of people will say, well, oh, we, we, we really struggle to get on with, with this and that. And I'm, I'm lucky in some respects because of uh, writing for the paper. I think I've been afforded a little bit more, a little bit more leniency by one or two firms. I've had, a, I've had plenty of accounts shut. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, there, there is that 
that does happen. Oh, I say plenty of accounts. So probably probably a dozen accounts shut in in my career and limited on a number. You know, big firms as well who limit you, which is daft really, because I've never been a, I've never been a thousand pound punter. So um, I can't have been that shrewd really if if it's took them that long to to close me down or to reduce my stakes. But I I I, I do find it amazing how it's gone in some respects in the last five years. Um, you know, reducing stakes at Cheltenham and reducing stakes for the Derby and things like that. You just, I just find it absolutely baffling how people can operate as bookmakers and do that. But that's just me. Hey, so when when you you're coming up with your bets, <laughs> you found your speed figure. You've done that. You've done the form mm. work. Do you have a value cutoff price where you look at that and you think, right, that's a bet for such a price, or if it goes below that, it's not a bet, and maybe even comes in lay. Any 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 of that factored in? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, I would say. I wouldn't have a hard and fast rule. Um, you know, there might there might be some horse that you just think, well, that's you know, I'd, I'd happy to be with that at evens. I, I don't tend really, tend to generally look at the thin end of the market, um, and that's probably seen a, an upturn in my profits in the last ten years. I think I think up to a point, I was I was very happy to bet, you know, even money chances or six to four chances to, to sit to decent money back in the day and then you just find yourself just going around in circles with it really it's just buying you a ticket for the next race and I I didn't really see it. so I'm, I'm happier now with him you know comfortable in my own skin to let the six to four chance win and think okay well that form's working out okay I'll see if I can get some money down the line from that race um, rather than thinking and knocking myself for, for not backing a six to four winner and I think that might have come from the proliferation of racing really the fact that there are so many races now 25 years ago if you missed a six to four winner it might only be one of 12 races on the day so you're probably thinking well that's one of my chances of winning a few quid gone but now most most days there's 25 to 30 races plus a bit of Ireland so you've got more choice haven't you and are you ever a layer yeah can be yeah um, short short prices um, most definitely um, horses that I just don't like the profile of a little bit not necessarily dodgy horses but horses that are backing up quickly after a break or just various little systems that I might you know think um, probably should lay a little bit more than I do um, but nobody ever walked into the pub did they and went well I've got under a quid out of the six to four favorite that got chin the other day and whereas if you say oh I had 50 each way on the five to one winner of the you know the big race on the Saturday you get more of a round of applause don't you so I don't think I've ever walked out of the office and thought I've done well today I laid two they both got beat won myself 300 quid and it's just we it's it's programmed almost within us that we want to back winners really rather than want to try and back losers so okay and so you mentioned each way there this is this, oh, is, right. this is a here's a question okay well this this is beyond my pay grade this is because this involves a requires a good bit of mathematic now well, this is it? this is the question that so on this you often get these bookmakers offers yeah the odds of first four a fifth of the odds of first five now, obviously it depends on what the prices are yeah but well, I'm a are pessimist. You, I'm, a Wolves, I'm a Wolves fan. I follow England cricket, so I will always take the five places. The amount of times that I've I've backed a horse, um, you know, one of the big meets, that those fifth or first five usually big meeting, either a big race or whatever, yeah. and the chance to, you know, the prices I back at, the ch- I don't mind, you know, I, I know probably the maths aren't, aren't very clever, but if my horse finishes fifth and gets beat a short head for fourth at 12 or 14 to one, the chance that I'm going to get nearly double my stake back instead of losing my stake I would, I would take the places all the time so anyone that's actually worked out the the odds of a horse finishing fifth in a in a, in a big handicap please um 
message us in and we'll find out who's right. And I've had plenty of finish sixth as well. Um, but I tend to have more. Well, that's the next thing. If you're well, yeah, back in exactly. first five and it gets chin for six. Exactly. And but those big Asker handicaps, I like to have three or four bets in those. <laughs> so if you've got five places to aim at, it helps. So another string to a bow you're broadcasting. This, yeah. um, what would be your highlights of your broadcasting work and how much do you enjoy it? Oh, I, I do enjoy it. Um, I'm not a natural by any means, um, but I've been fortunate to work with some brilliant people on racing TV and, and at the races before it, you know, with Sir Bob Cooper and one or two people like that. Um, but, but certainly the, the current raft of racing TV people without blowing too much smoke up their proverbial, um, you know, Nick Luck, Lydia Hislop, Stuart Machin, you know, some great people to work with. Um, very, very fortunate to, to still have a role on there and, and enjoy the days that I do do. Okay, so also, you've been, been, I should say, you've told me now it's in the past tense, a jockey's agent, you work <laughs> for, for Megan Nichols. Yes. Now, for those of us that don't know, which is me included really, what does, a, I assume you get the rhymes, but what, describe a day in a jockey's agent? Like? <laughs> um, a lot of work for not much money, <laughs> basically. Um, and you are very much committed to the job you know, because obviously somebody else is relying on you for their livelihood. Uh, and I've had plenty of that sort of, you know, you, you, your conscience is, is poked and prodded, you know, tipping horses. And if they lose, then you, like I would rather tip a 10 to 1 winner than back a 10 to 1 winner on a big Saturday in the mail. No brainer. Um, I, would, I would get more joy out of tipping a 10 to 1 winner than actually backing it. And you know, obviously looking after Meg last year, I sort of did it as a, a, a favour to her cousin Harry Derham and, and, and to her because she hadn't had an agent before. She'd done it all herself. Um, was a was a really, really interesting year, you, you know, 12 or 14 months. And for someone who is probably as pessimistic and negative as me, I found myself having to work as sort of, not a psychiatrist, like a sports psychiatrist, but um, just somebody who you know tried to look more positively if things went wrong in a race try and find the things that went right and then put put right the things that went wrong essentially in the way that she rode or whatever but I mean I can honestly say I thought she probably ran rode three or four average races last year I mean she was in terrific form and she did a lot of the work herself so um, it was a pretty easy role but it, you're still having to sell as such you know Meg's abilities to, to various trainers. You know, you're ringing round trying to trying to get her onto horses, and when the odd day where you couldn't get her a ride, it was it, you felt very guilty that it was somebody's livelihood that was suffering because of it. And what what's you know without going into figures exactly, but what sort of numeration is? They, do they employ you as a fixed figure, or do you get a percentage? Yeah, of you get ten percent. Basically, you get ten percent of the riding fee, ten percent of the the, the winnings. Um, I mean, I, I had to pick a year where she barely had a ride for a dad, which <laughs> which which wasn't great. But I, I was on a lower percentage when she was riding horses for Paul because obviously I didn't have to do any work for it, um, which was you know very understandable. Um, and it was very enjoyable. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I t it was almost like it was your niece or your daughter was doing well at school, and every time she rode a big winner, you get so much pleasure from it, you know. Um, it was, it, it, you know, it was, it was a really enjoyable experience in the main. Um, five or ten percent of it, which were, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind if that never happened again. Um, you know, dealing with one or two people that, you know, I, I won't name names, but they, they weren't easy. Um, but most of it, m most of the people were, were very sort of, you know, receptive to, to her riding you know, their horses, um, she had a good bit of success, her strike rate was terrific, she was getting on the right horses in the main, she rode a couple of 
world-class races for me. Um, you know, Goodwood winner, a glorious Goodwood winner as well, which was great. She got a real buzz out of that. So, you know, sharing in that success was terrific. Okay, so that, that um, has come to an end. Yes. Is, has your jockey agent career come to an end with it, or should Dave <laughs> yeah. Roberts be looking over his I, shoulder? I think under, uh, uh, unless James Doyle and Will Buick came knocking, um, yes, probably, um, because it, it is very restrictive. You, you're spending a good amount of hours tied to the computer. I mean, that, that's a beautiful thing with working for the mail and the tipping, is that you've got the 48-hour declarations on the flat, so in the high summer, you could probably work till 11 o'clock one night, and just say right I'm going to do all the cards for the day after the, the, the forecast is pretty stable I've got my speed ratings <coughs> I've got all the declarations I can work away and do those and give myself a bit of an easier day tomorrow I can go to the gym or I can walk the dog or I could you know whatever I want to do in the morning but when you're an agent you, you can't do that you know it all revolves around declaration time then once 10 o'clock goes you've got half past 10 filling up in any spares and then you might then have to start working towards the weekend and you know how these guys do it who have eight to ten I mean Dave Roberts or you know Richard Hale they're just it's just beyond me how they manage to cope with it all and, and it does very much restrict your life and I'm at the age now having just gone 50 where I'd like to enjoy a little bit of life rather than have it all completely revolving around racing so I think Meg's going to go on to um, another successful agent well I'll say another a successful agent somebody who's who's full-time at it and can give her the, the sort of care and attention that she she deserves really. Okay, now, earlier you mentioned John Babb, mm. he's another Midlands shrewdy. Another, another Midlands maestro, yes. Yeah, so what, how, how have you, um, how's that sort of come about and what, what is it you're doing with him? Uh, well, I've known John for a good few years really, obviously we, sh we have a shared love for Wolverhampton Wanderers um, and it sort of sort of stemmed about when I was doing a little bit of work when I was freelance just after leaving the Shropshire Star for Heather Dalton, um, sort of placing horses and making entries and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and John became attached to the yard as well and we had, we had a really average little mare between a group of us called Andalia that, um, and it was out of those sort of seeds that Shropshire Wolves was, was sort of grown really. Um, horses with Mark Brisbane and you know various other trainers um, with a good bit of success and, and you know John's a tremendous operator really obviously you know successful punter brilliant syndicate manager clever buyer and seller of horses brilliant placer of horses works with a number of trainers now um, you've got to get up very early to get one over on John he's, he's a very very shrewd cookie so I was lucky that I was sort of in Shropshire Wolves at an early stage I mean they've had a, I don't know how many withers it is but there's dozens doesn't and still having them in there I mean Snow Ocean won the other day you know they still keep regurgitating and, and I might have sort of glossed over a few of the failures but there doesn't seem to have been that many I mean he picked up steel cut for I don't know six or eight thousand out of a claimer and he won five in a year um, you know and just a lot of, a lot of local trainers Tony Carroll as I say Mark Brisbane and various other guys as well have, have all done terrifically well out of Shropshire Walls really so you were telling me you're going to be doing a, a podcast with John. So once again, you're yes. going to be giving away your edge and your secrets to, to the, <laughs> well, the, John the, is, the betting public. John is, because John will be the one that people want to listen to. Um, Self-depreciation again. Well, well no, no it, it's more a case of, you know, if you can sort of speak to these people. It, for me, it's yes, it's doing a podcast, but for me, it'll also be great to listen to how John approaches various things. I mean, you've podcasts in the past, I mean, the only... The Only Horses and Fools one or whatever it was called uh, with Ollie Bell and Tom Stanley and Nick Goff it was a tremendous listen because 
and no disrespect to the two horse racing lads who I work with on racing TV, but listen to Goffey talk about betting and the way that he approaches sports betting. You know, it even made me interested in American football again from 30 years ago when I used to watch it on Channel 4, you know. So, and listening to John, John's appreciation of how to weigh up a football market and various other markets as well, not least horse racing. Um, hopefully it'll make it a good listen. We'll, we'll be chuntering on with two old blokes. It'd be like we're sitting in a pub having a pint of HPA and rattling along and being miserable. But, you know, hopefully it'll be a good listen. Some of it might be useful. Okay, we look forward to that. And finally, everybody <laughs> likes to learn a bit from these. They've probably learned a fair bit already. But what would your um, one bit of advice for any punter from you to right. them? Right. In, in what respects? In to betting, win or betting, to try and pick more winners? Any, anything, but picking more winners, betting, anything. Anything you think is the most important thing to remember when you're trying to be successful. Well, I won't be glib enough to say subscribe to the speed figures, but I will say... Um, Bank management for me is is the crucial crucial point. Separate your your day to day expenditure from your betting money, and you will then find I think you know if you take the money out of your current account and you you op- open up three four five accounts if you can and keep the money in them, a the accounts might stay long uh, open for longer because you're not taking money in and out and people just don't you know bookmakers then don't feel as though you're just looking for a quick hit and you're just going to withdraw your money so if you leave the money in there if you can afford to do that build that up slowly it doesn't matter how quickly you do it um, don't bet at the thin end of the market I, I just don't see any future in that long term um, you know try and bet five to one and bigger four to one and bigger whatever um, and do it that way and I, I try and back horses that have performed well within the last three to ten days at least you know they fit well yes you're going to get the odd one that might have run well and then bounces off the back of that performance but generally you're getting horses and, and this will be the Steve Goff mantra you're getting horses even if they're running the day after that are on the cusp of you know on a wave at the moment um, whereas if you're backing horses that have been off a month you don't know what a trainer's done with them for a month you don't know what problems they've had you know anything could have happened to them in a month or six weeks so I, I like good recent form um, and, and, and play that way and play accordingly but but don't bet thin because you know, it's just, I just think it's the route to route to poverty, really. And, and as I said earlier on, don't strike a bet at nine o'clock that you wouldn't, ha- you wouldn't have envisaged having at 12 o'clock because that, that's only going to lead one way. Occasionally you'll get out, but most of the time, you know, the inevitable happens and you've then got to go to sleep on the back of that. And where do you come back the next day? When, where do you start? You know, if you've done all your banking the day before, you've got that mental scar, it's just not worth it. The torment isn't worth it. Brilliant. On that advice, Sam Turner, thank you very much. Cheers, Sam. Johnny Ward presents The Front Runner in association with starsports.bet. 18 and over. Be gamble aware.